Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would make your word come alive to us, change us, that we may bear fruit for the kingdom. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which we celebrate today. May we each know what it means to be filled and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be with all of you again. Uh, I was just here a couple of weeks ago and did an unusual wedding for a student from FSU now uh, teaching in China and the Chinese young woman that he met. Uh, And I won't go into that whole story, but I want to thank Grace as a congregation for hosting that. It was a wonderful time of a cross-cultural wedding. And it made me realize, uh, as I thought and prepared for that wedding, that you have cross-cultural things going on all throughout the scriptures. Not the, not the least of which uh, is Rahab uh, coming into the community, having been a resident of Jericho, uh, but a, a great-grandmother, so to speak, of King David himself. That was probably the first major cross-cultural wedding in the scriptures. Today is also a day of commitment, as a number of you will be making a public profession of faith in Christ, promise to follow him. Romans says, if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And the confession there in mind is a public confession, a willingness to tell other people that we believe in Jesus, whatever comes. And that's what's going to be going on today. That public commitment, that public confession is a sign of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or to put it another way, real Christians don't stay silent about their faith. Today is a day for all of us to consider our faith. Where are we with the Lord? What does it mean for us to follow the Lord? How can we continue walking in God's grace. That's what we're going to be looking at together from the passage in Hebrews. So I encourage you to turn to it. I think the page number was 1008. Um, I have no idea where it is if you're using your cell phone. (laughs) About 78 years ago, Winston Churchill returned to his boarding school where he'd been a boy, a school named Harrow. October 29th, 1941. He had been with the students 10 months beforehand. And in the midst of that time, Britain had been at war. People were dying, particularly in the bombings uh, of London and, and other areas. He was addressing a group of students, not only from his alma mater, but some of whom had already lost parents, or at least fathers, in the war. At the time he'd been there ten months before, the situation really did look hopeless. They had virtually no allies at that point in the war. 
things were slightly improving. But what do you say to a group of young men who are growing up to be into a war, many of whom will lose their lives, many of whom have already lost loved ones? What do you say? Well, I won't read you the whole talk, although it's very short, and I'd recommend that you go online for it. It's quite powerful. But he said, looking back over the last 10 months, he said, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. He went on to say, never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Toward the end of the talk, he said, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we only have to persevere to conquer. Hear those words again. Never give in. We only have to persevere to conquer. Now why do I share this message from seven to eight years ago? Because it's an example of the attitude the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey to these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians, who are in the midst of, of, of persecution. They're not in a nation engaged in war, but there is a spiritual war going on, and they are facing difficulty. Members are in jail. Their property has been confiscated. They've been physically beaten. And the temptation for these early Jewish believers in Jesus is to give up or to give in. Sadly, if we look at our own lives, it doesn't just take persecution to tempt us to walk away from the faith. I've been rereading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. When I first became a Christian, I was 17 years old. It was one of the first books handed to me. It's a book I read from time to time. But I'm amazed as I'm reading it again how often things that I've believed and even things that I've taught come from that book, although I have no memory that they were there. My loss of memory is not confined to mere Christianity. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis writes in the book about how we get tempted to give up, to give in as Christians. And he says that a Christian is tempted by his or her emotions to give in. He mentions the Blitz, which for those who don't know World War II, that was the rapid advance of the German troops, a lightning set of raids that took over much of Europe. He talks about what Christians face what a Christian man or a Christian woman faces when it comes to an assault. He says there will come a moment when there is bad news or he is in trouble or is living among a lot of people who do not believe it, not believe the gospel. And all at once, his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief, a sudden attack. Or else, there will come a moment when he wants a woman or wants to tell a lie or feels very pleased with himself or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. 
And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz, a sudden attack. That's, a, that's our nature as we walk as Christians. We're, we're tempted in a variety of ways. A de de desire to fit in, a desire to be accepted. A desire to do something we know we shouldn't do. Look at your own life for a moment. What kind of blitzes, what kind of attacks, what tempts you to give up in the Christian life? Maybe it's troubles. Maybe it's temptations to do something wrong. What sometimes makes you wish you weren't a Christian? What do you face? I'm going to ask you to keep silence for just a moment, just before the Lord, and, and look at your life and say, where, where is the, the weak point in the wall for me? Where, where am I often feeling assaulted about my Christian faith? Just take a moment. I want to talk about how we strengthen our faith so that we will not give in. There are three things to be looking at quickly. I want us to learn to look back. I want us to learn to look ahead. And finally, I want us to know one of God's purposes in hard times. So let's look back. Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter preceding the reading we just heard, is a list of faithful believers who faced hard times. It starts with Abel, an innocent man murdered by his brother Cain. It goes on to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. Remember that they are all wanderers. They are all, in a sense, refugees. They're all in territory that it was not their homeland, trusting that God had them where he wanted them. And in Hebrews 11.13, it says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In one sense, as believers in Jesus, we are all strangers and exiles. We're all out of our home country because our home country is not here. It's ahead of us. And if we don't keep that straight, we will get radically confused as things in the world around us seem to be falling apart or we seem to be in conflict with various things in the world. It's because we're not home. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, this book that had such a major impact for me, and I recommend you reading it, Lewis said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Well, Hebrews 11 continues with others who have been faithful to God in the midst of hard times. In fact, the whole chapter is fundamentally about how God is with his people in hard times. Some get rescued, some get killed. 
but God is always with them. Now, the problem we have, at least as American Christians, is that sometimes Christianity here is, some, is sold as a way to have a better life. Well, it is better. But not better in the ways we like to think of better. Nothing in the lives of those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 or in the teaching of Jesus paints a picture of an easy or rosy Christian life. In fact, you just heard the gospel reading where the gospel can come into a family and divide the family. That's not exactly a rosy picture. But after this list of faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, you can look at it. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are witnesses to the faithfulness of God even in the midst of hard times. He's encouraging us to look back at the faithful who've walked before us, to pay attention as they testify to God's goodness. The word witness is the Greek word martyr because some witnesses die for their faith. So I encourage you, look at the Old Testament heroes and heroines. Look at the faithful in the New Testament. But beyond that, look at the ways in which God has been faithful to you in your own life. Have a discipline of looking back to see how God has been with you even in the hard times. We are called as believers in Jesus, if we're going to be strong in moments of temptation, to be disciplined at looking back. Realize that whatever we're facing is not new. But we're also called to look ahead. The ones in the cloud are witnesses not only to what God has done, but they're witnesses of what we're doing. They're watching the race that we are running now. Now, it's not so much that we're uh, being applauded as that we should be looking to them, if you will, in the stands and hearing their cheers of encouragement. Therefore, again, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let, a, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is not a sprint, this Christian life. It's a long-distance run. It requires endurance. No punches are pulled here. The Christian life is difficult. And there are two things in particular, if you look at the imagery, that make it harder. One is extra weight. It's one thing to be uh, running anyway in a race, but imagine having a pack on your back of stuff you really don't need. He's saying, get rid of that. Now, the temptation we have as Americans is that we try to add more into our lives than we can actually carry. We live marginless lives. Often we think of the Christian, lives of thi as, uh, the Christian life as things we have to do, and certainly there are things we're called to do. But we also need to say to the Lord from time to time, what do I need to lay aside? What do I need to stop doing? What doesn't fit? What is not something you called me to do? And let it go. So sometimes we're carrying weights we're not meant to carry. 
But there's also just plain old sin. Things we think or feel or say or do that do not befit a follower of Jesus. And those sins which cling so closely also have to be put aside. We look ahead to focus our eyes on Jesus. He is both our example and our goal. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are looking ahead to Jesus, who ran the race successfully, perfectly, the exalted Son of God. A race that took him through the cross. We cannot expect that we will not have suffering because we're following somebody who did, who suffered. So we're to be looking back at other faithful, looking back to how God has been faithful in our lives, and looking ahead to the goal, which is watching Jesus himself and running toward him. But finally, we need to know God's purposes in the hard times. Now, this is a mysterious area, and I don't want to lead you astray. I don't want to say that everything that's going wrong in life is, is discipline for you. Because God has other purposes for difficulties as well. But one of his primary difficult, uh, one of the primary ways he uses difficulty is to change us. What kind of work is God doing? His goal for us is not a carefree life. His goal, which is not our goal, at least not in our fallen nature, his goal is to make us like himself. That's what God's doing in our lives like a coach or a trainer for a race, or especially like good parents raising children, Jesus allows pain and difficulty to mold us if we let him. Talking to parents in verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. It's something God wants to use to change us. What does it mean to share in his holiness? Well, the word holiness means essentially otherness, his, his difference. God is different than fallen human beings, and we're to be different because we're his followers. Different sharing his character. We're being changed to be like him. Now here's part of God's agenda for us to make us holy. His agenda is not to provide all we want, but to make us generous with what we have. His agenda is not to defend us when we've been wronged, but to teach us to forgive. His agenda is not to give us freedom to do what we feel like, but to teach us self-control. Not to fix things in our lives right away, but instead he's teaching us patience, which may be one of the hardest lessons any of us has to deal with. I think as Americans, we are impatient people. If we can't get it done in the next five minutes, it's not worth doing. His agenda is not to shelter us in a group of like-minded people, but to 
help us love people who are very different than we are, and he will often shove us into those situations. His agenda is not to keep us from being insulted, but to keep us from being isolated. His agenda is not to protect us from persecution and pain in this world, but to receive it with joy in anticipation of the next world. His training, his discipline, is for our good. Note that we cannot do this by ourselves. We need Jesus working in us. He's called the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started us in the faith. He's the one who's working on us. He is perfecting us. Other translations say he's finishing us. Actually, the best word might be the completer of our faith. It's not a great word, but you get the idea. The one who's going to bring it to an end and make us like himself completely. Let me close with a story of discipline. When I was in seminary training for the ministry, our daughter Sarah whom some of you know, was an infant. I had to get a part-time job. Someone at the seminary recommended that I work as a private duty aide at a nearby nursing home. The hours were great. I had the 3 to 11 shift, which when I was young was fine. So I could go to class during the day, help my patient through dinner, bathing, and then bedtime, and usually get in two or three hours of homework while my patient slept. I was literally getting paid to sit there. Now, my first patient was in an advanced stage of dementia, and the work was hard and messy. We couldn't communicate. It was the rough equivalent of taking care of a baby, except that he weighed 170 pounds, and it was much harder to clean up after. After he died, I had a second patient. This one was very different. He was able to get around somewhat. He could feed himself. When I brought him dinner, we could communicate just fine. There was only one problem. He was continually cranky. I never did anything right. Look, I'm a firstborn. My goal in life is to do everything right. He was mad at me night after night for not putting his pillows right where he wanted them. He swore at me constantly. Honestly, I couldn't wait for him to fall asleep. (laughs) Looking back, I realize now what we didn't understand then, that he was also in the early stages of dementia. There wasn't a night that I didn't consider quitting. I was in a continual wrestling match with the Lord. Lord, what are you doing here? Well, what was clear is that the Lord was not just trying to make me feel happy. But I had to learn some things. I had to learn not to be always defensive, not to retaliate. I needed to learn to hold my anger. I especially had to learn that I could not always please people, which is actually a fairly key lesson for clergy. Now, did one year of working with him cure me of these things in my life? Not at all. But it was an obvious part of a process that's still going on. It was discipline for my good from from my loving Father in heaven.
walk through the passage in Hebrews 12, what it says about discipline. The writer even goes on to say, discipline is a mark that you're really a child of God. Because real children get real discipline from loving parents. Let me close again with a quote from Mere Christianity. Lewis says this, The great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, His love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us. At whatever cost to Him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives, that you've called us to yourself, that we can look back and see your faithfulness in our own lives, but certainly we can see it in the lives of others as well. We pray as we look ahead that we would be focused on Jesus at the end of the race, that we would hear the cheering of the crowds of encouragement, that by Jesus working in us, we can persevere to the end. Help us never give in and never give up. Help us to trust you to get us to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.